November 4th, 2011, lecture discussion number 48 on the book of Romans, uh, along with chapters 4 and 5 of Edgar Andrews' book, Who Made God? Uh, and I wrote that uh, last night, and now I know that I'm not going to get very far with Edgar Andrews today because of other issues, but we are at chapters 4 and 5, for those of you who are following along on the Internet, and I promise that that's coming very, very soon, um, hopefully next week. Okay, admittedly, we are confronting a serious subject here at uh, Romans chapter 4. Considering, uh, Consider this uh, part 2 of lecture 47 from last week. Uh, I'm having to kind of double it up because of what we ran into. And this is where Romans 4, as you know, I hope you know, this is where the Holy Spirit, using the Apostle Paul, presents the truth of salvation by grace through faith, uh, which is the same as grace through belief in the name of the, uh, in the blood of Jesus Christ. All of that is all together. Grace through faith, belief in the name, blood of Jesus Christ. And this truth that the Holy Spirit uh, positions here, places here through Paul is put in direct opposition to, in absolute contrast to, human-based effort as a means of salvation. So here in Romans 4, that's why it's so important, I have grace, faith in the name, blood uh, of Jesus Christ. Okay, you got that? And on the absolute opposite of that is human-based, whoops, human-based salvation. You can use my abbreviation and call it hum-based. So, two polar opposites here in Romans 4. Two non-reconcilable positions. One is presented as truth. The other one is presented as a what? Non-truth. What's a non-truth? It's a lie. There can be no other conclusion. These are mutually exclusive here. Now, when I say no other conclusion, I realize that there's a vast, huge amount of folks, religious scholars, and not just Bible scholars, but also the universalists and the second probationists and the biblical holism people, those are Bible scholars mostly, Restorianism, along with the human-only salvation sects uh, are, are different uh, I don't know what you would call them, but just pick a religion that is a human-based only salvation system. And there are thousands of millions probably. I I don't know them all. Some are more prominent than others, obviously, from the different countries. Anyway, all those folks are going to rise up against me calling works or human effort uh, the absolute opposite of grace or belief in Jesus Christ with respect to salvation. Belief. Let me put that on the board. Belief versus Hum-based. Now, they prefer to commingle the two instead. Uh, they, they want them together. Instead of law or grace, I've done this many times, instead of law or grace, which is what Romans 4 is saying, they want instead law and grace. That is a commingling. I want you to ask yourself if that is even possible. Is law, I know law or grace is possible, one or the other. Is it possible to do what so many have done and actually put law and grace together? Is that possible? I think you'll begin to wrestle with that as we go along. That's what these, uh, these folks will rise up and yell at me. Now, with the Bible scholars who present law and grace, It's usually on the basis that obedience is necessary or the free will of salvation will be rescinded. In other words, I have to do something to keep my salvation. Uh, That's important, and usually that's obedience. And then it becomes imperative for, uh, for the now lost or lost again uh, salvation to be, or the, I'm sorry, the now lost or the lost again person. I mean, Say that more clearly. The law and grace folks, law and grace, want an obedience-based system in place. And if that obedience-based system is not fulfilled, then they want the salvation that you got by grace to be rescinded. And now you are lost again because you've gone through a a rescission or rescission. And you're now the, the now lost. And you have to be re-saved or re-gifted. 
Now, some deny the possibility of resalvation, and they do, and we'll have to deal with that. That's a Hebrew interpretation, a Hebrew 6 interpretation error, error in my view, uh, and I'll take on that next week. But they will say, no, once you are saved and you have lost your salvation by a failure to be obedient in some way, then you cannot be resaved. Uh, and, and I'll give you that next week in Hebrews 6. Uh, just understand that that isn't, uh, that isn't defensible. But nonetheless, it's there. You'll run into it a lot. I run into it a lot. Anyway, once you go into this law and grace, you are in in heavy muck. And so into the muck we go. And and a mountain of consequences now are going to come flying at you. And here they are. It's a mess. It's a debris. It's strewn everywhere. Uh, It's really, really a difficult problem to wrestle with. And that's why it should be obvious to you that something may not be altogether right here. We become confronted right off the bat with salvation or re-salvation. I'm sorry. We become confronted with re-salvation. And as I said, and we also are confronted with what they will call really saved versus maybe saved. You'll see that all the time. Let me start putting that on here for you. So you have two problems right off the bat with the law and grace position. You have to deal with really saved as opposed to maybe saved. And you have to become aware of and deal with re-salvation. Okay, now I'm just not writing it very well, but you get the, the gist, I hope. Once you have re-salvation and really saved versus maybe saved, then you go on to which sins caused the revocation of salvation. Wouldn't that be obvious? You would have to know that. If I have some kind of human-based system, I need to know where is the cutoff. I've played a lot of athletics, as you know, and they call it the Turk. The Turk knocks on your door when you're cut from the team, and you have to turn in your playbook or whatever you have to turn in, uniform, whatever the case may be. And we all know when the Turk is coming. When I was at Bartlett, I had to be the Turk. I had to put the names up of who got cut. And I didn't. I put the names up of who got, who made the team. I never put the names up, I never put a cut list out. But I was part of one time where I looked for my name on the cut list, and it wasn't there, and I was very happy. And then I looked around, and everybody else was miserable. And and so that's how I think when I see this. How come I got cut was the question they all asked. What skill did I lack? What did I not do to make the team? Well, that's what you're confronted with with law and grace. What is it that got you rescinded? Why did you get cut? What specific thing? There must be, is, there, is it like a cup? Do I have a cup? And when, it, when the cup fills up to here, then you are lost again? Re-lost? Now lost? Uh, maybe it's here. I want to know the difference between here and here. Actually, I want to know the difference between here and here. And then I want to know what caused you to go over the line to where you're cut. Does that make sense? You have to confront that problem if you have this view. Which sin caused the revocation of salvation as opposed, as opposed to what? You can do this. Yes, very good, out of the front row. The front row gets an A, and it's Kathy. Because there's 650 people in South Africa that want to know this. Thank you for you folks down in South Africa. We are stunned that you're down there. We really are. Which sins are allowable? If I have sins that push you over the line, what about the sins that are not over the line? Is it accumulation of sins or is it a specific sin that gets you over the line, that gets you cut? Can I do all of these sins and then I get a really bad one, boom, and now I'm dead? And that, what, what do we got to know? We got to know which of those bad sins now, right? Got to know which ones they are. And I've asked that question many times to different classes. I've said Get out your pieces of paper, because in those days it was a classroom not like this. I did have a board, but we all had desks. And would I like to have desks here? Yes, I would. I'd love you for all of you on tables and desks, and then all you have paper, and you all have to turn things in, or you get a beating. I'd love that. But I'd ask them, write down the sins that you think will cause you to be unsaved. You, you would be amazed. By the way, are any lists the same? And what did I do with the lists after I got them? 
That's right, I blackmailed everybody that turned them in because they, what they did, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. About that. What they did, of course, is put the one that they thought was the one that got them unsaved on the list, didn't it? It's just human nature. So it's really cool. I turned them over to the authorities. I didn't blackmail them. No, I'm kidding about all of that. Golly. <laughs> Again, when, when we're doing law and grace, let me repeat this because it's so important. We're being confronted now with resalvation and really saved versus maybe saved. That'll happen. I'll get to that in a minute. And which sins cause the revocation and as opposed to those sins which are allowable or excused sins. And of course, churches are much too eager to leap into the fray here, aren't they? And declare themselves to be the arbiters. The church, the leadership of the church, usually the holy pastor with the red magic erase maser, erase, what is this? Marker, sorry. He's going to tell you who's truly saved, isn't he? And he's got a whole bunch of old people behind him. Okay, I'm, I'm now one of those old people. Bummer for me. But he's got a whole bunch of them who are all his friends, and together they decide who's not really saved. How do you get really saved? You're not, first thing they do, they come in, are you really saved? You don't look really saved to me, and you don't act really saved to me, so I've given you a red card. You're not really saved. Now, for you to be really saved, you'll have to go through the really saved uh, committee to determine who the really saved are. You'll have to take the really saved class. And once you get to the place where we've decided that you're really saved, and you have given a little money to me, us, them, then we we will declare you, because of the power that we have, to be really saved. They, they are truly saved is the one you'll say. They call it the possessors. The possessors of salvation versus the professors. So I have possessors. I possess or I profess. Now, are there people who claim they are saved and know they are not saved and they are doing it strictly uh, as an act of evil? Absolutely they are. They're out there. Yes, ma'am. Yes, you have it out. People are listening in South Africa. All the lights? Can you not see me? Can't see the board? That's probably because of the red pen. Let me try this. Better? Okay. Um, Who do I have that's always sleeping through the sermon? (laughs) Uh, Seth, could you run back? On the shelf, there's a... Oh, Terry will know. Thank you, Terry. <laughs> That's really funny to ask that question, and everybody's hand goes up. <laughs> I had to do a wedding yesterday, and I told uh, Kathy that it was uh, it was more of my. Oh, actually, I told everybody there, but Kathy more the first that it was kind of my uh, uh, light-hearted uh, wedding versus my scare them all to death wedding, uh, but I still hoped I scared them all to death. Possessors are professors. You'll also see it, Schofield did this a lot, you'll see, uh, you'll see threshold Christians uh, versus uh, um, those who, who actually are stuck, uh, I'm sorry, threshold Christians versus those who actually go through the door of salvation. So... They will, you'll actually see drawings where they put a door of salvation and a threshold and the door swings open and the people stand right here. Thank you. Terrific. Appreciate it. And the people stand right there and they never go through. So they get right to the threshold of the door. The door's open. They really look like they're going to be saved, but they just don't quite get through the door. What's the obvious question? Yeah. Oh. First off, what's it take to get through the door? What stops you from getting through the door? Is there a particular sin that when you commit that sin, uh, you can't get through the door? Pane of glass fall down? Force field? What causes it? And that, by the way, thank you for laughing. I worked hard on that little sound effect. It is very common, very common for the church to declare someone from within their congregation to be unsaved based on behavior. It's the most common thing in the church today. And they declare them to be re-lost 
in need of re-salvation. I've watched it hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. I have had it happen to close friends who were, who were declared to be unsaved due to a, a sinful act. Um, and by the way, it's just logical, isn't it? If you were lost, once lost, and we were all once lost and became saved and then lost again, then you are re-lost. That's logical. I'm going over this again mainly because of Jonas. That's right. It's Jonas's fault. And I thought maybe Misty put him up to it. But we don't have any evidence of that. And I have I've checked the camera footage that is recording everybody all the time here. So no evidence. So for now, Jonas gets the blame. And Jonas now henceforth gets the title. This is the Jonas Lecture now forevermore. Jonas came up to the holy dry erase board during the sermon post game last week and offered some good insights and questions and uh, observations and, and some angst. And so I promised him that I would answer every single one of his questions this Sunday, following in my tradition of always answering every single question that you ever ask every single time and i realized that uh, jonas's questions were mathematically representative which means that others all over the place had the same questions and i'm really getting that pounded into me because of the response we're getting from these internet sites and all those numbers that dave gave you are from one site and we have four or five of them i don't even know how many we have now they have a way of just going out, and uh, I was talking to Ira earlier, and he he was telling me that he's listening, and so now we know where Ira was because we can trace him now. And never mind, I'm kidding. But uh, I know that others have the same questions, and I know, as I said earlier, this is difficult and prob- problematic. I- I'm trying to make it a little bit funny just to keep it interesting, but I know how serious it is. It's very serious, and so I know it's true that others are struggling here. Um, I've heard them many, many times. Also, as everyone knows, the best way to answer questions such as these is kind of what I'm doing. I'm doing it in a subtle way, but it's, it's what you do is you trace their progressions. Where do they go? And you trace them both directions. Where did they come from? Who, who originated this doctrine? Where, where is the origin of it? Why did it come into, what's making it Come into the mainstream. In other words, where do they come from and where do they lead? Where do they go? How do they end? And what's the best way to do that? The best way to do that is, as always, ask more questions about the questions, which is what I'm kind of doing to you right now. Asking more questions about the questions is sound methodology, says the spider to the fly. Anyway, as we travel this path, it is required to keep in mind the relationship between James and Romans. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. Because you'll see problems in Hebrews 6, and you'll see problems with James and, and Romans. And there really aren't problems there. they are just mistakes made. Romans is Genesis 15. You must know that. James is... Genesis 22, what I mean by that, they both have an Abrahamic context. Both of them are talking about Abraham. And they both are talking about him. And it seems like they're talking about him the same. They're not. Romans is talking about Abraham at Genesis 15. Very important to know that. That is the place where Abraham is saved, essentially. You can make the case for Genesis 12, but I'll use Genesis 15 because Romans quotes Genesis 15:6. That is Abraham at the beginning, at the chain, at the, at the salvation of his life. Genesis 22 is what? That's the end. Knowing that's really important, that's the formula. So you have to begin any study of Romans and, and James, or you have to begin any study of this subject that we're talking about uh, with Romans and James, but you have to know that they are the same. All of Scripture is perfect, without error. God breathed in its original form and therefore is not, not contradictory. Never. Romans and James teach the same truth. If you are reading James and you are reading Romans and you are saying to yourself, these don't fit together, then what's wrong? 
Is the Bible, is there a mistake in the Bible? No. Where's the mistake? You, me, us. Don't say that. Run from scholars or supposed teachers who suggest there is a conflict between Romans and James. There's not. It's really not hard. There's your formula. I'll fix it for you next week. Knowing that formula is very important. Not knowing that formula opens the door to interpretive error. What is basically at stake, if you will, we'll call it stake number one. What's basically at stake in this discussion is a few things here. Here's stake number one. And is the doctrine of preservation. Have you ever heard anybody say the doctrine of preservation? You might have heard it as eternal security. I hope you've heard either one. And its correspondence or its harmony with the doctrine of assurance. So I have preservation or eternal security, if you will. And I also have assurance. First thing you want to know is they are not the same. They're often confused. Stated this way, but they harmonize. Stated this way, preservation or eternal security is a true fact of Scripture. Whether the believer realizes it or not, the believer has security, is secure in his or her salvation, whether or not she or he has assurance. Now, you may have this. You will have this. You do have this. You may not think you do. They're two different things. Somebody comes up to me and says, I am not saved. Well, it's the first thing I ask them. Who is Jesus Christ? They answered, John 8, 24. We're in really good shape. And off we go. And I find out really fast if they are saved or not. It doesn't take long. You cannot confess those truths or believe those truths unless you are saved. You cannot. You will not. All I have to do, and I've had, as you know, countless debates. Nobody debates me anymore. I'm starting to feel neglected. But I used to have lots of debates all the time, and people would tell me that they're saved. And I'll ask them, who's Jesus Christ? And they will not answer. They'll do everything. They'll dance around it. They'll, they'll do, but they'll never say he is God in the flesh, the Lord God Almighty. Never do it. I go, okay, you're right. I believe you're not saved. Oh, it was the other way around. Sorry. Not really. The doctrine of preservation is distinct from the doctrine of assurance, though they connect. So you may not know you're saved, but you are. You have eternal security. You may not think so, but you do. The issue is, you say to me, I have no assurance of salvation. Now, that's doctrinally correct. You could come to me all day long and say, I have no assurance of salvation. I'll go, okay, something to work on. But don't come to me and say this. Because now you're in trouble. You're in doctrinal, thin, shallow, tiny ice. Breakthrough. The doctrine of preservation is distinct from the doctrine of assurance, though they harmonize and connect. Next, stake number two. What's at stake? Stake number two. Are we saved by grace, belief, faith, blood, substitution, end of story, by Christ alone and kept by Christ alone? Is that true? That's at stake here. Or are we saved by the aforementioned, what I just said, grace, belief, faith, blood, Christ alone, kept by Christ alone? I'm sorry. Are we saved by grace, belief, faith, blood, substitution, Christ alone, and then left to a system of obedience or self-reliance? That's your choices, isn't it? You're saved by grace, kept by law. And what is that? That is by far the most common practice church system in the United States today. By far. It's overwhelming. They're winning. But is it true? What does the Scripture say? That's at stake. Here's stake three. It's funny, when I first wrote, what's at stake, I wrote S-T-E-A-K. And so every time I go over there, I want to change it. 
Stake number three. Is the position of eternal security then a license to sin? In other words, if a person believes in the name of Jesus Christ and is kept by Christ himself and does not have the power to free himself from salvation, does not have the power to overcome the grip of Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty. Notice how I'm phrasing that to you. That's all intentional. Let me ask it again. If a person believes in the name of Jesus Christ and is kept by Jesus Christ himself, and that person does not have the power to free himself from salvation or overcome the grip of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord God Almighty, then is there no consequences for a life of carnality, a life of darkness, a life of wicked hedonism? In other words, did you follow me there? Let me help, just in case you're looking at me. Mostly you look at me like I'm crazy. That's okay. I'm getting used to it as I get blinder and blinder. Is this a license to sin? If I cannot be, if I cannot lose it, if there are no consequences, I am still saved. Why not go out and whoop it up and throw myself into absolute wicked, hedonistic, narcissistic behavior and send myself to death? Why not do that? That's at stake. And then stake number four. Because the first, that question I just asked leads to stake number four. Why would anybody witness? Why would anybody strive to be obedient to the commandments? Why would anybody why wouldn't we all just get our get-out-of-jail-free card and jump in the mud and stab each other to death? Because that would be fun, right? Is that what you're thinking? It's amazing. I'm glad a few people laugh. I really am. You know, I just... Comedy is so hard for me. Just to get one of you is a big deal. Um, Let's listen to John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, Jesus Christ is saying, keep my commandments. Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord and do not do the things which I say? Luke six forty four or forty three through forty four. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. Now, first thing I have to do, of course, is immediately define fruit. Lots of people will want to define fruit for you. You have to make sure that their fruit is the right fruit definition. Whose fruit definition do I want here? I want God's fruit definition. God is the what? The fruit inspector. He's the fruit decider. Who else wants to be the fruit inspector and the fruit decider? Who always wants to decide what is fruit, what is not fruit? That's right. The church does. Get in there. There's money in deciding who's the fruit. That's a fact. But that's at stake here now. Is obedience inseparable from salvation? If you answer yes, then the next question becomes, obedience to what exactly? How much obedience? What's the line? I have a friend, he's still alive, and he keeps telling me every time I talk to him. I ask him, how you doing? I don't see much, but I got one of his ladders. He told me, you keep that ladder until I come back to town, and then I want my ladder back. I said, great. It's working fine. I wonder if he wants to make let me store a four-wheeler or something. That might be good, too. But I got his ladder. Every time I see him, I bring it up because he's told me this many times. I said, so how's that last guy in the room going? What he means by that is, I want to be, told me plain to my face, I wish uh, Lord's brother Matt was here because we were all working together, I want to be the last guy into heaven. That's what I want. Wow. That's what you want. The last guy. He wants to be, as soon as he walks in, the door closes, he's going to consider that a life well lived. And I keep asking him to consider what he's saying. 
Is obedience inseparable from salvation? Because this guy wants to know, how much obedience do I need to be the last guy in? There's got to be a cutoff, right? How much obedience does the last guy need to get in? Do you see this relationship to which sin causes the law of your, loss of your salvation? It's the same thing, isn't it? Again, who determines who is obedient enough? Obviously, God does. But who wants to? Who determines who has committed too many sins to remain saved? Who wants that authority? Well, the church wants that authority, as we're all aware. There are many in the church who want this responsibility. And they take it and do what with it? They're immediately very destructive. Their pharisaical hypocrisy runs rampant. See Matthew 23. Realize that both sides of this issue sin. Okay, I erased my... my uh, my board there. The law or grace side sins. The law and grace side sins. Both sides of this issue sin, and both sides of this issue excuse that sin. Do you see that? Those who advocate eternal security, they sin. Those who advocate control over their salvation, they also sin. And both sides excuse that sin. All believers sin. Newsflash. The person sitting next to you is going to sin during the sermon. Okay? Some are doing it right now. Mocking the pastor must be a sin. As the arbiter of sin... I should be able to pick. Never mind. We all stumble in many ways, James 3.2. There are those, as an aside, just give you this quickly, who will declare themselves to be less sinful than everybody else. And be suspicious of those people. I have heard a pastor in this city, bless his heart, stand up and say from the pulpit on, uh, on you know, he reaches... Never mind. You'll figure out who it is. But he's in this city and he does it and he's very prominent and he says this. My sins are not as bad as your sins. Holy mackerel, honey child. Who in the world could say that? From the pulpit. You must be kidding me. My sins are not as bad as your sins. He would go on to say that his sins are sins of omission. Your sins are sins of commission, you horrible, wicked beings. What he meant by that is, is that he doesn't know he's sinning. For example, there's a poor person on the street and he is busy rushing to a funeral. And he should stop and help the poor person on the street, but he's focused on the funeral and that's a sin of omission because he didn't know that he should stop. Where well, you're stealing people blind. And <laughs> and lying. Mother stabbers. <laughs> I don't know what to say about it, but but there are those who will declare themselves. I had a one guy and used to tell me that he had not sinned for two weeks, and I just went, wow. Okay, how about counting just now? We want to do that? Because that's a lie. What are you thinking, boy? I just can't believe this stuff, but it, it's the way it is. And so, no, there are those who declare themselves to be less sinful than everybody else. And be suspicious of those people. Reread Matthew 23. But realize that Christians will sin, and it will be willful sin. It will be intentional sin. They know it's a sin. I know it's a sin. I'm going to do it anyway. Getting even with you no matter what. <laughs> okay. This, notice how I'm kind of following the uh, the wedding, huh, Kathy? Yeah. This is what happens when I get tired. Christians will sin. Does that sin, that willful sin, cause the loss of their salvation? Yes or no? That's at stake here. And finally, we get to my favorite part of this problem. And again, it's a problem, and make no mistake about that. It causes sincere grief and suffering. But I believe it can be solved by asking questions, as I said. And so here's my favorite part. Uh, this has long been my favorite part. I'll read it. You don't have to go. It's Romans again. You've heard me read it before, but mostly for the Internet audience who outnumber us now about... Oh, my goodness. I shouldn't tell them. 
500 to 1 maybe now. I'm going to read to you Romans 4, or 1 through 4 again. And then shall we say that Abraham, there's your context, Abraham is the context. So when you compare James, realize that Abraham is the context in both. And what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, the model, the example, the forerunner, Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified, in other words, if Abraham was saved by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, you can't boast about that before God. It isn't true. If Abraham was saved by works, he has something to boast about, but no. For what does scripture, what does the scripture say? Wow, what a verse. Remember that verse is there. What does the scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15, 6. What's the obvious question? Of all the sermons he could have picked, he picked this one. The Holy Spirit directed Paul to Genesis 15, 6. You gotta ask why? Why 15, 6? Could have gone almost anywhere in the Old Testament. There are hundreds of places he could have gone. But he didn't. He went to 15, 6 Genesis. Because it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. That's why it's my favorite. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted. Your works are not counted as grace, but as debt. The model of all who are saved, Abraham believed God and was saved. Abraham was not circumcised at the time. That's Romans 4, 9 through 12. Paul makes that point. Abraham believed and was saved. So Paul then puts belief on the other side of circumcision. So we have on one side now believed God and the antithesis of that, sorry, is circumcision. Okay, I will tell you right now, in the big event that is coming, there will be a race. It's, it's because of Amanda. So you can practice at home. Will I really do it? Yes, I really will do it. You can prepare. It will be cool to see who actually does this. In order to exchange your gift, you will have to come forward in a competition with three other people, and when the whistle sounds, you will have to spell circumcision backwards. On the dry erase board. And if you are first, second, or third, and Amanda will win, you will not beat Amanda. Will they? Not, not Amanda Petsu, Amanda Cronister. See how I've just set everybody up for this? It'll, it'll be so much fun. I mean, let me erase circumcision. So no, you can't. There's a real problem in there. You know where the problem is? Yes, it's the S and the C. Okay, but okay. Back to the back to the subject. Notice I didn't spell it right this time, so you'll be confused. I'll spell it wrong. That'll be cool. <laughs> That'll do it. That'll stick in your head now. Okay. Paul put believed God. Abraham believed God on the other side of circumcision. Why did he do that? The number one tradition of the Pharisees, the, the, the tradition of traditions, it is absolutely necessary to salvation. And Paul puts Genesis 15, 6 there. The Holy Spirit commanded it through Paul. Of all the scriptures, again, always ask, why is 15.6 against circumcision? That's a key to this. Believed God against circumcision. That's the point. Abraham, the father of all who believed, the model, also is the father of circumcision. He puts them side by side. Believe God has command. It has jurisdiction. It has governance over circumcision. It is it is unmeasurably or immeasurably superior to circumcision. He destroys salvation by circumcision with salvation by believe God. That's what he did. 
There was no, no symbol or rite or ceremony or tradition more precious to the Hebrews than circumcision. Circumcision to the Jews, essential to salvation, required. It assured them of salvation. Do you see? I had a physical thing that I could have done and it assured me of salvation. And Paul said, no. Holy Spirit says, no. Believe God. Believe God has command, has governance over circumcision. Holy Spirit says, believe God. So, all of these things, people say to me, I did not go forward. I did not raise my hand when the pastor asked me to raise my hand. I am not baptized. I did not receive communion. I did not make a public demonstration. I am not circumcised. Whatever, insert whatever you want that you think is essential. The Jews had circumcision. It does not stand up against believe God. I say all the time, the thief on the cross. He couldn't have an obedient walk, could he? How come? His feet were nailed off. You think this is an accident? thief didn't really like being crucified, but he became this incredible symbol. God put him there. He couldn't have an obedient walk. He couldn't raise his hand because his hands were nailed off. He wasn't baptized. In fact, his eyes were eaten by birds. He had no last rites. He didn't get to go forward. What's God teaching here? But he believed God. Literally, he had God right next to him and he believed him. He cried out to God next to him and said, remember me, and he believed God. Now, ask this. If it is not a belief system for one to be saved, if this isn't true, if it requires something else besides belief, what then, what kind of system is it? If it is not a supernatural system, a non-physical system, because belief is a non-physical act. It is an act of the mind. It is the act of the being. If it is not a supernatural system, what kind of system is it? See, that's why I asked you from the beginning. Is it possible that there is such a thing as law and grace? As I'm going to say to you, no. Those are, that is not possible. That is a contradiction. As soon as you add law, what have you done to grace? You have eliminated grace. So there is only law. If you say that it isn't a belief system, if it's not a grace system, then there is no other system that it can be except a work system, a human, a human effort system. Do you see that a combination of law and grace is impossible? It's impossible. Somebody comes to you and says, I am saved by grace, but I am kept by my own law-based obedience, human effort system. You will say to them, that's impossible. It's impossible. Sorry. No. Not really sorry, am I? No combination of law and grace is possible. Once law works, humanity is added, it ceases to be grace. Do you realize that when you add obedience, what are you adding to his system of salvation? I have God and I have God's system. Okay? And when you add human based effort to it, you have added God plus human, right? It becomes, once law or works or humanity is added, it ceases to be grace, it ceases to be God-given, it ceases to be Christ alone, and it becomes human-focused. Because that's where the weakness is, isn't it? I have to have, I don't even worry about this anymore. i got to worry about this. I'm going to break right there. That's why I said previously, I don't believe that God would design a system that no one could accomplish. Because that's what you've done. You have said, my human-based effort is required. And I'm saying to you that no human would ever make it. 
And so it can't be true. Why would God design something like that ultimately becomes the question. Why would God design a human effort-based salvation system? You have to say that he designed it. If you think it is true, then you have to answer why. Why did he design it that way? Who is glorified in such a system? Who gets the glory? That's why none should boast, right? If you have a God plus human-based system, who gets all the recognition? Who's cheering for who here? Clearly, there is where all the glory will go. Do you think that makes sense? I held on to my own salvation. You didn't. Nanny, nanny, foo-foo. And I'm going to boast about it. Look at me. I made the cut. I did it. I made the team. God gave me a chance. He gave me a uniform. That's cool. But I kept my uniform on, and I did all I needed to do, and I made it. You didn't make it. Too bad to be you. Ceases to be God-given. It ceases to glorify God, and it becomes a human system. Do you really think that God has designed a system like this? Why witness was the great question of Jonas yesterday, or the other day. Why witness? Why obey? Why be a watchman? Why warn others? Why strive to run a race of obedience? And by the way, races are run for what? What do you get if you run a race? You get a trophy. That's right. You get a prize. Everybody gets a trophy no matter what place you came in. Just run your race. It doesn't matter how, how, how far behind you are. We're going to give you a trophy. It'll be really, it'll be the same as everybody else's trophy. It'll be great. Why do you run races? For crowns. Are you running the race for salvation? No. It's very specific. You're running for crowns. Now, ask the obvious questions. What are you saying if you don't witness? If you think this is a license for sin, which so many do, then what happens if you don't witness? What are you saying if you don't witness? What are you saying if you are not obedient? What are you saying if your life is just black and dark and stupid and selfish and narcissistic and hedonistic and you just went out and did whatever you wanted and you didn't care. You did it knowing full well that God is omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. You didn't care. What are you saying when you do that? By the way, raise your hands if you've done it. Don't raise your hands if you've done it. What are you saying if you if you do that? If you don't keep his commandments. He answered that, didn't he? I read it to you. You're saying that you don't love him. And I always used to say, uh, I'm going to show you your love for Christ. Those songs, um, and it's funny, probably now that Talia has come. The greatest joy I get with Talia is the same that I have with Amanda. Uh, Not Petsu. Oh, she's gone. I drove her out. He seemed to laugh at so many jokes, too, doggone it. Here's, I'm going to put our love for Christ on the board. Can everybody see it? Versus his love for you. And we sing these songs about how much we love Christ. I love, no, you don't. Quit, quit lying to me. You love yourself. How do I know that? I love me. And I'm better than you. <laughs> Somebody will think I really think that. That'll be great. But Talia's the same way. We ha- we now sit in here and tear songs apart. I have ruined every Christmas carol that you have ever heard, haven't I? And that's what I love about Christmas. <laughs> anyway, ask these obvious questions. What are you saying if you're not obedient, if you don't keep his commandments? He answered that. He said to you, you don't love me. So what's the next obvious question? Why don't you love him? Why don't you love him? I know it's not very much, but why don't you have any? Why don't you? I had a friend. Where is the fear of God? Dickie Schooler. Where is the fear of God? What makes someone not love Christ? Do you think that you deserve to be saved? What are you saying if you go out and act as if you are saved? 
and can do anything that you wish. You can murder, you can rape, you can steal, you can be as ugly a person as you can possibly be. What are you saying about your salvation? Do you think you're better than others? What would possibly make you think that? Do you think you game the system? See, what you're ultimately saying is if you think this is a license to sin, you're saying the people who become saved and then go out in sin are doing it because they do not love God, they do not love Christ at all, or as much as you, or even worse, they think they have outsmarted God, or they have outgamed Him in some way. Why would anyone think that they could game the system here? If you do not witness, if you refuse to witness, what are you saying about yourself? What are you saying about the people you're not witnessing to? I don't deserve to be witnessed to. I deserve to be witnessed to. They don't. I got my salvation. I'm keeping it. By my own effort, I asked uh, this question because I made a basketball reference. If salvation was a basketball and you were enough, you were a point guard and God passed you the basketball and Satan playing defense, man to man on a point guard, how fast he take that ball from you? Really fast. So how does Christ keep you from turning the ball over instantly? How does he do that? Super glue is the answer. What's it look like? It's blood, that's right. Super glue, or what we call the blood of Christ. Do you think you have the power to deny salvation to others? That you can hide Christ, keep him away from your enemies? That your enemies should not know? They're your enemies after all. I don't want to tell them. I don't want to witness to them. What are you saying? What are you saying about yourself? What are you saying about your salvation? What are you saying about your Savior? Love your enemies. Bless them, Matthew 5.44. What is the only way, frankly, the only way to love and bless your enemies? What do you do to love and bless your enemies? Okay, I had this happen to me. I had a person come up to me when I was in Hawaii, come up to me and say, I hate you really bad. I hate you. Hate, hate you. Yes, you. I went, cool. And he said, I want you to be saved. Wow. He was convinced I wasn't. I hate you so much that I want you to be saved. And he walked away. How's he doing? Never forgot. He's doing great. He hated me. Did I deserve to be hated? No. No, not me. (laughs) Do you deserve to be hated? But he wanted to make sure that he told me everything I needed to know to be saved. And I listened to him. Never forgot. What are you saying about Christ if you refuse to witness, if you refuse to lift, 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 live a Christ-honoring life? Do you say that your salvation is meaningless, valueless? How about simple? How about easy? Have you no gratitude? Have you no respect? Why don't you care? Why don't you care? Answer that question. That's the one that solves it for you. More next, next week. Musicians, let's uh, rise and be dismissed. Musicians will come forward.